back to Chasing the Ghost Light. My name is Hannah Meyer, and on this podcast, I ask writers about the singular moments and stories that haunt them artistically. This podcast is produced by Three Girls Theater, a theater company in San Francisco dedicated to developing, presenting, and promoting new work by women writers. And this week's guest is Christy Lynn Balloony. You might know her as her writing teacher alias, The Sexy Grammarian. As the sexy G, she arouses writers through fierce artistic support and editorial feedback. She's also a writer, and her fiction, essays, and plays have been published in a number of places. She's written about how her experience as a sex worker and sex educator showing med students how to give pelvic exams has taught her everything she needs to know about guiding writers through the process of conceiving their work. Christy is part of the Les Rights BTQ cohort at Three Girls Theatre, a project dedicated to putting up new work by queer and gender nonconforming playwrights and solo performers. Christy is developing a play called The Trees, which is based on a queer erotica story and a flash fiction piece that she wrote about John Muir and President Theodore Roosevelt. So thank you for coming on the podcast. I know that before you became the sexy grammarian, you you were a sex worker. Can you speak a little bit about how you got into that? I got into sex work in a very privileged and choice-based way. I wasn't pressured into it or chased into it or in any kind of a non-consensual sob stories that we sometimes hear about the sex industry. I I went in eyes wide open, really from a feminist perspective of curiosity and also some healthy, useful vanity and desire to explore my own sexuality in a new and maybe uh, rebellious kind of way. I love what you say about the feminist impulse to come into your own through sex work. And I know that now something that you speak a lot about is knowing how to like navigate things like vulnerability and knowing other people's needs as I'm wondering to what degree did being a sex worker and sort of embracing that freedom to experiment inform your writing during that time? Stepped into the sex industry looking for some ideas about looking for some glamour, looking for some sort of sexual zing and I found that in certain places, but what I really found was a lot of process, a lot of exactly what you just said, a lot of required creation of safe space in order to sort of make the gig work, whatever that may be. And, you know, a lot of people who step into sex work consensually don't start with prostitution. They might start with, you know, cam work or dancing or something. But I did. I started right away with outcall escorting. And that is a one-on-one, usually, situation. And you cross a threshold and you don't know what's going to be on the other side of the door. And in those kind of containers, at the very beginning of my experience, what I usually found was that it was up to me to create a space where that person could explore whatever it was they had decided to risk a few hundred dollars on. 
And I really started learning about sex as something that was more about therapy and self-care than about showing off and being sexy or even getting off. And that was a surprise to me. And I thought, oh, well, maybe that's just in escorting or just in this. But I got to San Francisco and there was such a range of different kinds of sex work to explore. I found that to be true everywhere I went, that the exchange of money for sexuality was also an exchange of money for intimacy and safety. When you talk about this exchange of money for intimacy, it reminds me of your work with Project Prepare. Can you speak a bit about that? They are an amazing organization that still exists, and they teach medical students how to, not only medical students, but all kinds of healthcare providers, how to do the pelvic exams, as well as breast exams, and how to have conversations about sexuality that are relevant to healthcare. And I did that work for a lot longer than I did sex work. I was still a sex worker when I found that work and I started doing it, but I stayed in that world of work for 15 years. And I had many experiences of creating safe space for learning there because the the actual situation is a clinic room, a lay person like me is the teacher, Three, typically medical students, sometimes nursing students, sometimes other kinds of healthcare providers, but three medical students would come in and they would know that they are learning the pelvic exam tonight and that they don't have a doctor in the room and that their teachers are coming from this very special organization, maybe had the word feminist attached to it somewhere. Yeah, potentially. Uh, so they all have these like wide eyes, right? They all had wide eyes and they're second year medical students. They think about like, the lifestyle, especially 20 years ago, the lifestyle that you had to have to get into Stanford Medical School, a lot of these second-year medical students were themselves not necessarily very either socially or sexually experienced or knowledgeable. And so it was such a place of tenderness and going in both directions, right? They're holding a speculum in their hands for the first time. They've usually never touched a patient at all, maybe to learn how to take a pulse or something, but very little patient interaction. And they're holding a speculum and they're looking at this woman they've never seen before. And they're so scared of creating pain or creating trauma. They're scared, 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 scared. And it's my job to model how to be the person who's not scared in the room during a pelvic exam, for them to be able to do that in the future. And that exchange of safety and power was just endlessly inspiring for me and taught me so much. I remember the very first time I was in a classroom like this, I wasn't teaching, I was observing another educator teaching. And there's a part of the pelvic exam that includes examination of the anus And there was a student and she put on her glove and she seemed like she was all okay. And she, you know, learned how to put lubricant on the finger of her glove. And she, and the the educator was talking her through it. And she put her finger right on the anal sphincter and everyone was calm and she passed out. Whoa. And hit the floor, you know? That's intense. Yeah. Also for Lashby, your first time seeing it, it's almost like a film in a way. 
that reaction. Yes. Absolutely. And it was a completely natural and, you know, it was, you know, whatever was going on for her that caused her body to just say, nope, not going to do this. Going to exit. Not today. Um, just, yeah. But it just really, for me, as a first time educator, as an educator in training, it really like, just as I had been sort of smacked across the face with it many times in the sex industry, it smacked me across the face again. Like, this is not a place where I am here to show off that I'm sexually cool. I am here to help people get through something where every single person in the room is very vulnerable. In that experience in teaching people and sort of coming into your own through the the sexy grammarian later, and also as a, as a sex educator, how does the navigation of that vulnerability sort of impact your own writing process? Hmm. That's a really interesting question. I really didn't start actively publishing until several years into my work as as the sexy grammarian. And of course, this 20-year career that I've had supporting writers, I didn't start out as the sexy grammarian. I started out editing romance novels for three books a page, which was like a job I could do from home when I was transitioning out of the sex industry and trying to figure out what I wanted to do next. And I, I went from editing to realizing that so many of my editing clients needed so much more. They weren't actually ready for an edit on their novel. They needed to like figure out why this character disappears in the second act before we edit it, or they need to figure out, you know, what the real climax of the story is before they edit it or whatever. So it sort of morphed into me helping people with developmental editing earlier stages of the project. And that sort of morphed again into me being a teacher. And in the meantime, I sort of found myself going, oh, how did I become a writing teacher when I don't feel like I'm a writer yet? And that opened me up and said, well, you know, you better start becoming a writer. <laughs> um, and I started, again, trying to model that vulnerability and trying to, to be really transparent with my clients about what I was doing and that I wasn't coming from a place just like I had learned about sex and sexuality. I wasn't coming from the place of like, I'm the sex expert here. I know more about sex than you. More coming from a place of, can I create safe space for this person to be creative? Can I help them see what the next thing they can do to move forward toward their goal might be. And that's all about this sort of like kindergarten classroom kind of energy. So to come back to my writing, I think that my process is very much informed by that theme. I've learned to write by learning to take really good care of myself in each stage of the process. So if I am in that imagination stage, just like if I'm looking at a writer that I'm working with as a client, if they're in that imagination stage, or or if they're a medical student trying to palpate a uterus, as you brought up, like what do they need right now to understand that the top of the uterus is here and that the bottom of the uterus is here and that those two things are, are that their two hands are holding on to the same thing? Or what does this writer need right now to be able to 
close her eyes and see the end of her novel? Or what do I need right now to feel safe, you know, writing whatever's on my mind and not criticizing while I write, right? It's all this sort of like, how can we create space for for the creative process to to flow? I know that you came into this because, you know, you were good at sex work and had the teaching skills and that you started asking questions and that it made you examine the assumptions, the defaults, and the heteronormative paradigm itself. How did sort of unpacking these narratives about sexuality, did it sort of co-concur with your your sort of reimagining of how you saw the, the writing process itself? Yes. And, you know, how I... How I see the writing process has grown and changed really in my years of working with writers. I try to sort of identify where folks are and what hurts about where they are. And then we're, and then we're going, right? Then we're, okay, like, how can we, you know, how can we solve this piece that hurts? And rather than it being like, oh, you shouldn't do that or you should do that, like, I also, um, I, I'm married to a, a social worker and she comes very much from a harm reduction background. And so I'm very informed by harm reduction in my work as well. And, uh, you know, at a very basic level, harm reduction is I'm not going to judge any of the things people usually judge about whatever it is about your behavior. I'm just looking for what is hurting you about it and looking for a way to, to solve that. And so I'm always looking at that like, you know, if you're journaling forever, but you're fantasizing about publishing your poetry, where is that pain point between all of this journaling that you feel really great about and this fantasy that you're sort of not reaching? And I think that there can be a lot of pain in sort of staying in one part of writing forever. Yeah, yeah. And sort of not self-actualizing and like admitting to yourself like what you really want. Because I know you mentioned sort of the trajectory and sort of calling yourself a writer later on after you had started teaching. And I guess, how did you navigate that for yourself? I'll be honest. I have shed a lot of tears and struggled with a, a lot of imposter syndrome around that, honestly. And that struggling, I think, is what makes me able to empathize with writers struggling because those feelings of imposter syndrome, those feelings of who am I to write this, we, we all experience them. And I have a lot of tenderness and an acceptance for that pain. Mm, yeah. And it makes me think of what you had said about, um, you know, publishing writing and journals being sort of like, if a tree falls in a forest, does anyone hear it? And that resonated with me. Um, and I know that you had had a big shift when you got into playwriting and began writing in a more like community oriented way. And I was wondering if you could speak a little bit like what that shift was like. Sure. I... Yes, I, I, you really did your research. I'm so flattered by everything that you've read. <laughs> um, I went on a, a deep dive. That's awesome. I'm very flattered. Um, yes, that was 
a mind-blowing shift for me, quite honestly. I, as a writer myself, I it's sort of the same way I did with with sex work, jumping straight into like full service. I, um, as a writer, you know, the first thing I attempted was a novel, and that was so hard. <laughs> you know, a novel is really hard to write, and and then you know after struggling with that for for some years struggling with trying to finish several trunk novels i really gave myself permission to shift to short fiction and sh- and essays for a while and that was a big breakthrough for me because i started getting to finish things and complete the whole process complete all the stages including submission and seeing publication and that really lightened my experience as a writer but then my, sort of my new struggle was like, oh, I'm publishing this stuff, but nobody's seeing it and feeling that experience of, you know, oh, this anthology came out from this small press, but who's going to really ever read it? And just having having that feeling of finally, I got something published, but nobody saw it uh, over and over. And when I started playwriting, the experience was so radically different right away even in the process, even at the process level, but I mean, definitely at the production level, your work goes out and my very first short play got to be in a, in a, a show at Piano Fight here in San Francisco in the Tenderloin. And it was on a, on a, I think a Friday night or a Saturday night. And, and actually I think they did those shows on weeknights. So it's probably like on a Wednesday night. And, and my friends all showed up. And so when my writing started coming out of the mouths of those actors, I was sitting in a room surrounded by my people. And when there was a laugh line and a room full of people left, that was the feeling I had been chasing since I started struggling with the first novel of just having that visceral and physical and environmental experience of response. And I was super hooked right away, right away. I had wanted to ask you a little bit about the forest. So I know that it centers around the Scottish botanist John Muir and President Teddy Roosevelt and a trip that they went on that changed the world, basically. Can you speak a little bit about the historical context, and also why it felt conducive for erotica. I kept seeing this story about this camping trip that happened in 1903 or 1906, uh, somewhere in there, that Teddy Roosevelt had invited John Muir to go on this camping trip. And they were both prominent figures at the time, very well-known I mean, obviously, Teddy Roosevelt was the president at the time, but but John Muir was a very famous man at that point in his life. He was uh, well into his 60s and famous as a conservationist and for his activism around um, Yosemite specifically, but other other wild places. And it's a story that like there are children's books about it, the camping trips that changed the world. And and there uh, and there are plaques all over the place in Yosemite that refer to it. And I first saw uh, or heard about it in a in a documentary about Yosemite uh, National Park, and it's held up as this story that 
that is sort of like, you know, John Muir took Teddy Roosevelt to this beautiful place and then Teddy Roosevelt made legislative change that, that secured Yosemite for generations, right? That's kind of the short story. But when you start learning a little bit about what these two men wrote about it, because they were both interviewed about it and, and they both wrote things about it. And they also both exchanged personal letters for the rest of their lives after that trip. I started getting really interested in their, in the relationship that was forged that weekend or that on, on that four day trip and how it was that they were able to even get time alone because of who they were. And the more I dug into it actually was difficult for them to get time alone. And Teddy Roosevelt actually had to sort of play a trick on, on a bunch of dignitaries that were with them on that trip in order to have sort of a night alone. And the more I started reading about it, the more I was like, this is sexy. These guys wanted alone time. And then also they, you know, John Muir actually wrote that he fell in love with Teddy Roosevelt over that trip. Uh, used those words, fell in love. And Teddy Roosevelt wrote, the things that he said about it were more kind of bratty. Uh, like he said things like, he wrote things about how John Muir calls himself an outdoorsman, but doesn't even know his bird calls. And other sort of, uh, you know, things that sound, that were just so woman scorned um, in their yeah. tone <laughs> to me when I read them. That I just, I don't know. I just started, you know, I mean, I see sex in everything and I see, and I think that, you know, in my imagination, everyone's a little bit gay. And, and I think that we are moved and changed by intimacy. And I just started really fantasizing about what happened when those two men were alone to create such change. And thinking about the, also just the sort of the sexual power of nature, especially when you read the way John Muir wrote about nature and the way that he used the word mistress a lot in talking about nature. I just had a really strong desire to explore the idea that the camping trip that saved the world could be more like a story about gay sex saving the world. And I started experimenting with that. And, you know, I had, when I first started working on it and I would tell someone what I was working on, they would say, what, do you have some reason to think Teddy Roosevelt was gay? Do you have some reason to think that John Muir was gay? I was like, no, I have no reason to think either of these. It's not even like, and, and, and the story I'm interested in telling isn't even about identity at all, really, or about gay identity anyway. It may be about human identity in some way. But it's really more about, you know, uh, um, Dan Savage often quips something about about how uh, sex made us and it will unmake us and, and that sex always wins and that, that sex can kind of change everything. And I think that I, I really buy into that as well. And yeah, I, I just think it's really fun and, and whimsical to dream about sort of rewriting some of this heterosexual white male um, world-saving stories as being, you know, instead of sort of dominion being about vulnerability. Yeah, 
And I think it's so interesting how people are like, oh, it's this very intense, like four day, like political transaction. You know, I love that you brought up the the letters kind of that like John Muir wrote, like there is no one other than you who I would rather be in the woods with. And I feel like the denial of that is so sad and that there's something inherently like so romantic, as you pointed out, about that kind of relationship in the woods. Also, you know, I love what you said about gay sex saving the world. And I feel like there are many instances of that happening and people not really acknowledging it historically. Um, but there is this really interesting sort of thread in terms of, you know, if you think about like things being persistently there of this haunting of past relationships. And in the last paragraph of the erotica piece, you write, John infected me with his love as only a man can thrust something so fragile and terrifying into another man's soul. So I'm wondering, were there any experiences in which you were haunted by, by lost love or past love that informed this piece? Hmm. I don't think that I am haunted by lost love or past love, like people. So, so much. I think, I I mean, I, I want to stop and consider that question for a minute because I, I don't, I don't know if, I think that, I think there's something, this might be a little bit off topic of the play, but I think that there's, there's some relationship between grief and haunting. And I think that, especially when you take the definition of the word of, of the persistent presence idea, and I have, I have lost to death people who I have loved. And I do think that those relationships are always in my writing in some way. You know, especially people who were um, supporters of my writing. I actually worked a writer, um, Dave Robb for, for some years who passed away a few years ago. And he, um, did a lot of editing for me in my work. And, uh, and I, and I also, uh, did a lot of editing of his work and we exchanged a lot of feedback. And I do feel he and, and, and other friends who, and even I'm thinking of my grandmother who, who was an, an editor and, a, and a, a journalist. I feel like some of those people stay with me in that way. Hmm. Speaking of things that are persistently lurking in the background of the writing process, you mentioned earlier that you had made a shift to working on short fiction and short essays. And in this process had put some novels that you were working on in the back burner. Is there any novel in particular that has continued to to haunt you even though you've sort of paused working on it? So the first novel that I wrote, I wrote in NaNoWriMo. Do you know what that is? Yeah, National Writing Month. Yeah. Yeah, National Novel Writing Month, which has been going on for probably multiple decades now. And the first time that I did it was, I think, fairly early on in its life. But I guess just to explain it briefly, basically, it's an online community where thousands of people worldwide take on writing a novel sort of writing with abandon for 30 days and getting 50,000 words written. They call it a race or a contest, but really everybody who writes 50,000 words wins and it, and you're sort of self-checking on that, you know, if you if you reach the the goal then achieved it. 
So I, I did that and I wrote what I think, you know, most, most writers write for their first novels, something fairly autobiographical and, and working out my sex work experience, telling uh, a story about a, a sex worker. And, you know, I wrote that novel. I wrote it in, in the 30 days. It was sort of a novel that I'd been writing in my head for some years. And I, I read it after the fateful November and, and realized that what I had on my hands was a bunch of vignettes, not really a novel, a bunch of sort of short stories that didn't have a, a strand. And so I dived into, I was already working as, as a writing teacher by this time. And I kind of knew what to do with a novel that was a bunch of vignettes. I had helped other people with novels in, that were in that shape get to something. So I started working really hard on plot and storyline and trying to create a through line and pull it together. And I eventually got something that felt a little bit more like a novel. And I printed it out, uh, multiple copies of it and handed it out to, I think, a dozen or so friends. And, and they all read it and, you know, bought each of them dinner one at a time or had my wife had dinner here with my wife and listened to them tell me what they thought of it and, and went through that whole experience and then worked on another draft. And I don't know how many drafts I did. And I finally really kind of gave up on it. Like I, I couldn't finish it. I couldn't figure out how to complete it. I couldn't get it to a place where I felt proud of it, where I felt like it worked. And then I moved on. I moved on to the next novel. And I remember while I was trying to finish it, my writing teacher, Meenal, Meenal Hajratwala, who's an amazing writing teacher, said to me, you know, I was struggling, I think, with writing the end, how, how it should end. And I was just like, I don't know how to do this. And I just want to sort of throw it aside. And she was like, but you have to learn how to write endings. Like, you can't go on and write another thing that and not write an ending for it. Like you might as well stay with this thing and write the ending so that you can then move on to something else and have some experience having written an ending. And that was some really great advice that ended up really serving me later. But at the time, I don't think I took it or I did take it, but I still didn't go to the next stage. I never really put it out into the world, right? And I have since torn that baby to shreds and used some pieces here and there for other things. And, but, you know, it does, it does haunt me. And what haunts me about it specifically is the people who read it, who were cheering for it to be a thing. All those people who I had over for dinner, who worked on giving me feedback to help me complete it. I think about them sometimes and I think about what they, I have this like story in my mind about how they're still waiting for that novel. And it's, you know, been, you know, many years since then. I, and I'm sure that they're not waiting for that novel and they are still, you know, my supporters and fans and they have, and they were there for opening night at Piano Fight a couple of years ago. So, you know, I think they've probably forgiven me much more than I have forgiven myself. But I think that when I think about that story and I think about what, how to help writers not be haunted by old projects, you know, I think that it's really that that, that that project never got to have its, it never got submitted. It never got put out into the world, never got that sort of completion submission stage. And I think that projects that don't get to like, even if, even if it had gone out into the world and been the, the tree falling in the forest that no one heard, 
it would have been like I have other projects that I finished and that were published but nobody read or published badly or whatever that don't haunt me so much because they have a sense of completion. They've been through the stages, right? For better or for worse. They don't have to necessarily succeed in all of the stages, but they have to have like had their turn, I think. Mm-hmm. Do you still sort of have those voices at all? I mean, honestly, the, the my unfinished novels continue to haunt me and I continue to dream of returning to them someday and completing them. So I think those are definitely unresolved issues. Yeah. It's kind of like when someone like asks you like how like a relationship is going and it's not right. not happening. Yes. When you're like, actually, we broke up. Yeah. Yeah. Like many, many moons ago. Um, one question that you often ask writers is how is sex like writing? So I sort of wanted to turn that question back on to you and sort of like ask you how it, how you're thinking of it now. I do ask that question a lot. And I, and I love that I've gotten to hear so many writers talk about it. It's a metaphor that just keeps on giving. There's so many ways that sex is like writing. And I think that And I I love the question about sort of personally right now in my life, how are those two things related? I, I think it's about that I never stop learning and that I never stop changing. And that humility of that I don't really know where this might end up. And that's really kind of a beautiful and romantic thing, right? If you think about it in sexuality, if you think about it in, in terms of like a sexual encounter, that when we step into that vulnerable place and take a risk um, and open ourselves to another person, that we're not really served by a bunch of expectations and visions of where this is going and what this is going to be. You know, we may be more served by exploration and curiosity and trust and intimacy and sort of seeing where this goes. Yeah, not being end result focused and sort of acknowledging the the sort of anxiety or hauntings or whatever that are kind of informing and sort of being like, it is in flux. Yes. And the, the learning piece is like, you know, I'm almost 50 and I'm not in the same sexual body that I was when I started out as a sex worker 25 years ago, right? And, and this constant learning of that the human body is continues to be sexual throughout our lives and and that it doesn't look the same and that you don't know how it's going to look and that every time you think you you know how things work things change and i you know i tell that to my writing uh clients all the time too like we're gonna figure out your writing process and then you're gonna use it and then it's gonna change (laughs) you know And I think that sexuality is like that. And I think that writing creativity and art are like that too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Is there anything else that you want to get out into the universe? I definitely am always interested in meeting new writers. And my website is sexygrammar.com. And definitely come and support Three Girls Theater and Les Rights BTQ and all of the theater makers around you, everyone, please. (laughs) 
Thank you for listening. This has been Chasing the Ghost Light. You can find out more about Christy's work at sexygrammar.com. Next episode, I will be interviewing Julia Jackson. If you enjoyed listening, please share, rate, and review this podcast at wherever you get your podcasts. Our music is from the band Thrown Out Bones, and Chasing the Ghost Light is produced by Nicholas Angleton in association with Three Girls Theatre.